What's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Because I promise you, your answer to that question is gonna have profound implications for your conduct and your behavior and how you are going to live out your life. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. We are in week three of our new series in the book of Daniel, uh, which we have entitled Thriving in Babylon. And this comes from the words of Daniel from chapter 12 when he says this, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and and ever. So Daniel is really all about how to be a faithful witness in a secular Babylonian world. And when we talk about the concept of Babylon, we are saying that is any nation any kingdom or indeed any heart that stands in opposition toward God and his sovereignty, his power, and his rule. If they are bent towards God or if they're leading away from God, then they are part of Babylon. That's the language of scripture that we see all the way from the book of Genesis through Revelation and we see it most vividly on display in Daniel. And so we talked about last week the two religious pitfalls that we can fall in as we're we're trying to be a faithful witness, as we're trying to walk with God, there's pitfalls. And I put it this way in your note sheet. I said, when it comes to living in Babylon, many Christians choose either assimilation or separation. So in one sense, we might say we got to go along to get along. We get cozy with the culture, and as Jesus would later say, we lose our salt, and we are no longer effective to help build the kingdom, because we're just like the world. But on the other side, we might not get cozy. We don't assimilate with the culture. We separate from it, and we might not do that physically, but we do it culturally. We are opposed to our neighbors. And we think that really the battle that we need to be engaged in is to try and win the culture war. And that is our sole focus, is to fortify our walls and to protect ourselves from external threats, whatever they may be. And yet, what we see in Scripture, especially in the book of Daniel, is that we are called to live in a radically different, but also enormously difficult, third way. What is that third way? to influence a world that God loves. To influence a world that God loves. Now, do you remember what Daniel and his three friends told the chief eunuch last week when they decided we're not going to indulge in the delicacies of Babylon? He said, could, could we just eat some vegetables and some water? Would you, would you allow us to do that? And then he essentially said, Watch our lives and see what God does. Watch our lives and see what God does. And I just want to once again lay that before you, that one of the objectives of our lives when we interact with our friends and family members, our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, is to invite them to see our lives 
and to see what God is doing in the midst of our lives. I think that's a beautiful image. They choose not to defile themselves with the delicacies of Babylon, but nor do they ascribe hatred toward the very people who are responsible for the very terrible atrocities that they are experiencing in their own life. Instead, they do this. They seek to lead others to righteousness. That's what they want to do. That's their motivation. That's their goal. And so let me ask you this question. When you wake up in the morning and you go out your door, what's your goal? When you go to work, when you go to school, when you engage in politics, when you deal with nuanced, important, difficult questions that arise within culture and within life, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Because I promise you, your answer to that question is going to have profound implications for your conduct and your behavior and how you are going to live out your life. And once again, Daniel is our case study. He sees that even good old King Nebuchadnezzar is not his enemy. He might be captive to the enemy, right? He might be caught up in the Babylonian world, which principalities and powers of this dark age are responsible for, namely Satan and his minions. So he might be caught up in Babylon. He might be captive to the enemy, but he's not his enemy. And because of that, Daniel is placed in a prime position to influence good old King Neb. And we're going to see that once again this morning as we look at our text. He sees Nebuchadnezzar not as his enemy, but kind of like a sheep without a shepherd. Kind of like a sojourner who's lost in a barren wilderness. But he is not his enemy. So if you got your Bibles, look with me. Daniel Chapter 2, let's look at the first three verses. In the second year of his reign, which means if we're following the timeline here, that Daniel is still um, enrolled in Babylon University. Right? He's still learning uh, to become a magician, to become a wise man. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So let's just stop right there for a second. Really interesting note that we see starting with this verse is that verse 3 is where Daniel switches from writing his book in Hebrew to Aramaic. So chapter 2, verse 4, till the end of the seventh chapter is all written in Aramaic. And I shared with you last week that the creative license that Daniel is using here is he's saying, you might know what it looks like to follow God in the Hebrew chapters, but can you do it in Aramaic? You might know what it looks like to follow God on your own turf, in your own home, at church. You might be able to do it there, but can you do it in Babylon? Can you do it as you are living in a quote-unquote secular world? And this is where it begins. Now Daniel needs some incredible wisdom, some incredible tact, if he's going to know how to engage in a Babylonian culture such as this. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. 
The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar is a bit of an MO. Whenever he's angry, he's like, I'm going to cut you up. Right? We learned that last week. Jeremiah 39, that's what he did to uh, the Israelite king, right? He did it to his whole family, gouged out his eyes, and presumably that king is somewhere in Babylon, blind as a bat, living out the rest of his days, but he's there. And so every time Nebuchadnezzar gets angry, he says, I'm going to cut you up. And this is what Daniel is dealing with. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once, they rep- uh, once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So Nebuchadnezzar, he, he calls all the wise men, all the sorcerers, the enchanters, the astrologers. He tells all of them to come into his palace, and his mind is tormented. He cannot rest. But the question we might ask ourselves is, why won't he share the dream? Like, wouldn't that be helpful to have that sort of information? Why does he refuse to share with them what his dream was? I think one thing that will help us see what is happening here is that um, part of their training at Babylon University, each wise man was given a book with interpretive keys about dreams. So a cow meant something, a horse meant something, a woman, a child, a woman in childbirth, stars, the sun, the moon, a flower, all of them meant something. And so whenever you had a dream, they would go into this book and they'd say, okay, these are the themes that are popping up in this dream. Boom, dream interpretation. Simple enough, right? And yet, I think King Nebuchadnezzar is catching on to this and he thinks it's kind of phony. He thinks it's kind of like our modern day version of, um, what are those uh, uh, cookies or biscuits that you get where you break it inside and inside there's like a little message for you within them. Like uh, the early bird gets the worm unless of course the second mouse gets the cheese, you know, or just some sort of silly statement like that or don't trust a gossip or your patience will one day be rewarded. Something generic, like something like this. Something will happen to you someday with someone at a particular place. You're welcome. Wisdom just oozing here. And so I think King Nebuchadnezzar realizes that this is a bunch of dog doo-doo. And he's not very interested in it. So here's his way of trying to understand if you have the authority of the gods... If you're a wise man, an enchanter, if you're in tune with the gods, then you should actually know what my dream is and then interpret it. And in that way, I know that you're not going to give me false information. Fortune cookies, that's what they're called. You were all thinking it. I couldn't think of the word. Fortune cookies. So he's like, you know what? I'm done with fortune cookies. I'm done with all that stuff. Tell me what my dream is. And so then we see what happens next. 
Verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or any enchanter or any astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Take note of this. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Circle, highlight, underline, squiggly mark, arrows, anything that you can use. This is a really important reference. What is Daniel talking about here? What are the wise men thinking? Well, we have to remember the Babylonians were polytheistic just like the Egyptians. They believed in a plethora of gods. You can worship whatever god you want, but one thing we all believe in together is the gods are not concerned about humans. They got their own wars going on. They got their own issues that they're dealing with. They don't come down, they don't stoop down to our level and express their concern for us. Oh, king, you know that. This is so difficult. You cannot demand this of us. And yet, what is Daniel pointing to? One day, the gospel writer John will say this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing. Not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. No one can reveal to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. And in the midst of that, scripture will always tell you that Jesus Christ came down, and I love the way the message puts this, and he entered into the neighborhood. He put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. The ultimate fulfillment of the story, we have to see this right at the beginning, is King Jesus. Verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So this is a problem because, as you might recall, Daniel was forcibly taken from his home, and then he was forcibly enrolled in Babylon University to become a wise man. So by no desire of his own, he is in this program, and because he is in that program, he is now about to be cut into pieces. Seems rather unfair, but this is just a day in the neighborhood for Daniel, so his life is now at risk because of the decree of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13. So the decree was issued to put wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Take note of that. Wisdom and tact. He's learning how to live in a Babylonian world. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And so we see that again, this wisdom intact message. This teenager Daniel is wise. And once again, 
just like we saw in the first chapter with the chief eunuch, we see that Daniel once again is highly favored by the very men who are supposed to make his life miserable, to oppress him, to mistreat him. And so here's the second man, Arioch, who takes favor with Daniel. He gives him time. He doesn't immediately put him to death. He allows him to go to the king because, because this Daniel has wisdom intact. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So we just learned something incredible about this Daniel. And I want to take a little bit of time to do a comparison and a contrast between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, a slave who has nothing and the most powerful king in the most powerful kingdom in the entire world. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He has everything that a person could ever dream of possessing. He has power and influence and, fl and fame and fortune, health, wealth. He's got it all. He has the American and the Canadian dream all wrapped up. And yet, he is disturbed. He is deeply disturbed. And what is he disturbed with? As we are about to find out, his biggest issue is he's worried about his own insecurity. His own insecurity. The fact that he knows that he could lose everything. He has come to terms with the reality that many of us try to ignore. That everything that we have is like a mirage in the desert. Everything that you could possibly ever possess, all the power, the influence, the fame, the fortune, the security, all of it is a mirage because there will come a day in which you will die and none of it will come with you. And so we see what, what is happening with King Nebuchadnezzar. He's climbing the corporate ladder and he just so happens to be the one person who stands at the top and yet he is afraid of falling off. As we will see, as the, as the dream is later interpreted, the reason why he is so deeply disturbed is because this dream represents the crumbling of everything that he has ever built, everything that he has control over. And so if you see a statue laden with gold, which looks like a statue that you yourself would build, and it crumbles to the ground, surely that must be you. And so he is insecure. He has the one, or he does not have the one thing that he desperately needs, peace. Peace. And let's compare that to Daniel. Daniel's a slave, right? He's been taken from his home. His temple has been ransacked. Presumably his parents have been murdered. He has been castrated. He has been thrown into Babylon University by no reason of his own. And now because he is studying to become a wise man, he is scheduled to be put to death. And not just put to death, but cut into pieces. And yet he, he has peace. Obviously, he's concerned, but look at his behavior. Look at what he does. Let's just take a note of this. He goes home. He prays with his friends. And then he does something which I think is the craziest of all. He falls asleep. 
Let me just ask you, like if you found out that tomorrow some dictator was going to come to you and he was going to slaughter you and cut you into pieces, are you sleeping? We're not sleeping, we're in a cold sweat up at night and we're fretting or we're trying to work out a plan like maybe I can escape. Maybe I can run out into the wilderness. I'll be a sojourner the rest of my life, but it's better than being cut into pieces. He falls asleep. What peace? What peace? And then he has the dream. He wakes up and immediately, we have to see, he doesn't rush to his friends. He doesn't even rush to King Nebuchadnezzar and say, I, I discovered the dream. I have the interpretation of the dream. Don't do anything else. Don't kill me. Don't allow people to come to my door and cut me into pieces. I got the interpretation. What does he do instantly? What does he do? He worships. He thanks God. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. What does it reveal about the treachery of our own hearts in the way that sometimes when God answers our prayers or he brings about blessings upon our life and we take them for granted. See, this is the little Thanksgiving wrap-up. See, I planned on doing Daniel chapter two on Thanksgiving weekend. You're welcome, Thanksgiving, Grace. So what, what happens in our own life? Don't we do the same thing? Don't we spit on the good deeds of God? the providence of God, the mercies of God, every time that we forget that he is the source of all good things. And so Daniel starts with worship and thankfulness. And as we look at this prayer, I want you to see the pronoun usage, right? That's I, me, my, you, your, they. Just take note of the pronoun usage. This is incredible. He says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light that dwells within him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. It's like Daniel's trying to say something. 13 times. In four little verses, he says, it's all about you, 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 you. It's all about you, your sovereign plan, your power, your control. You are the one who moves kings up and brings them down, who causes nations to rise and to fall, kingdoms to collapse or to fall down or to rise back up. You are the one who is doing all of it. You are in control. And then the text is written in such a way where Daniel is actually sandwiched between two men who are just totally insecure. Look at the next text here in verse 24. I find this so fascinating. Then Daniel went to, er to Arioch, right? That's the commander of the king's guard, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, take note of this, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. 
And so for Daniel, when he receives the dream interpretation, he gives thanks to God, and the first thing he says to Arioch is don't kill the other wise men. He didn't have to say that. Like, yeah, they, they don't have the answer. Go slice them up. I don't care about them. But please, just protect me. He doesn't say that. He says don't kill anyone else. His concern is for others. And yet, what does Arioch do? Well, in the business world, this is, like, uh, this is called looking for credit for the discovery. He comes before the king. He says, oh, king, guess what? I found the guy. I found the guy. And so once again, we see that Nebuchadnezzar and Arioch, they're caught up in Babylon. It's the ladder again. All of them always chasing up this ladder, trying to move ahead of others, trying to establish and maintain control over their lives, their empires, their kingdoms, the things that they have created. And Daniel's not concerned about any of that because that's not the kingdom that he's building. And so here's the question that I want to lay out before you. This is, this is not new. We've been learning about this in our Exodus series, and it's showing up again here today. What are you drawing near to? What are you drawing near to? See, goshening or drawing near to God's stuff brings about insecurity and dread. But goshening God brings about peace. That's what we see with Daniel sandwiched between these two incredibly powerful men. And Daniel's the only one who has peace. Look at verse 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And stop right there. Remember, remember what the king has already shared with all the wise men, all the astrologers. If you are able to interpret the dream, I will give you whatever you want. I will give you gold and influence and power and position. But if you can't, I'm going to cut you up. So here's Daniel's chance. All he needs to do, he just needs to say one word. He needs to say, yes, I can interpret your dream. I and only me. I am the one. But before I do that, I want you to make sure that you give me my freedom back. Let me go back to Judah. Me and my three friends. Everyone else, I don't care about them. Let me go back. Oh, and by the way, show me the money. Show me the money. Give me the gold. Give me the influence. Give me the fame. Give all of it to me. All he needs to do is say yes. And guess what? There's only Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2. The story is over. He's free. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He says what we learned in Daniel chapter 1 verse 17 last week. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And so again, Daniel says, God, it's all about you, 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 you. It's not about me. So, O king, no, I cannot interpret your dream. No magician can. No enchanter can. So these are the words in verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Can we just stop and camp there for a second? There is a God in heaven. 
Is this not the question of all questions that we ask when we are worried about the world? Is this not the question for those of you who are Christians who ultimately want that ultimate security about? Is there a God in heaven and is he at work? Is there a God in heaven and is he concerned about me? That's the question. And I promise you, your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, your classmates who do not know the Lord are asking the same questions. They'll say things like this, I I've tried to make the relationship work, but it's just too far gone. Or they'll say, my kids are rebelling and, and they're out of control. Or they'll say, I I've lost my job and I don't know where to turn. Or they will consider the ultimateness, the finality of death, and they don't know where to put it. Do you see how irreligious people in our community just hate the concept of death? Like the only time we can talk about death is on Halloween. But at all other times, we won't talk about it. Why? Because it causes us to come to grips with the finality of it. That without God, the end is the end. And it fills us with dread. And so we are all looking for the answer to that question. Is there a God in heaven? And in the midst of all of us, when, when we Goshen God, when we draw near to God and we don't draw near to his stuff, here's what happens. He will give you peace for your circumstances. He will give us peace peace for our circumstances and my question to you is do you believe that to the extent that you do you will have peace see only after distinguishing who is the one who can reveal all mysteries will Daniel actually start telling Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was all about. We see that in verse 32. Take a look at this. He essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing here, King Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a giant statue. His head was made of gold. The chest and arms were made of silver. The belly was made of bronze. And the legs were made of iron. And then we have 10 toes at the bottom. We have feet that were made with a mixture of iron and clay. And while you were admiring this statue, a rock came out from heaven and it shattered the statue into pieces. That's what you saw. And King Nebuchadnezzar was just like, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. That's what I saw. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the sovereignty of God even in all of this leading up to this exact passage. God is the one, is he not, who causes the uh, downfall of Israel and Judah because of their unfaithfulness. And then God is the one who leads Daniel to Babylon, right? And God is the one who gives Daniel wisdom beyond everyone else, beyond all measure. And God is the one who causes Nebuchadnezzar to have a dream, and he is so filled with frustration and angst that he cannot interpret it. And God causes Nebuchadnezzar to be agitated that it puts him over the edge. And then God is the one who gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. We see from start to finish that this is the sovereign plan of God. All of it. And that needs to be an encouragement to us. Because we have to come to grips with our theology for a moment. I think sometimes we say, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he is in control. But maybe, just maybe, 
He turned around for half a second. He came back and he said, what happened? What's going on? They're in office now. They're doing this. They're doing that. My goodness, I turn around for just a second and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Listen to me. God knows. God knows. And he is in control. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the peace which transcends all understanding in recognizing that God is sovereign over all, or don't we? And if we don't, we have to come to terms with that. And if we do, then we have to question why we get so agitated and concerned and angry when things don't work out the way that we expect. Because God is communicating something to us. He is saying, I am sovereign over all things. And so here's the second note I want to lay out before you. When we Goshen God and not his stuff, he gives you peace for your future as well. For your future. Think about Daniel for a second. The one thing that Daniel never receives is an interpretation about what will happen in his life. Even this interpretation here, we know that I'm going to explain to you in just a second what it's all about. This happens over the course of more than 2,000 years and all the way up to today. So there is a dream interpretation that covers years upon years upon years upon years upon years. And yet Daniel still doesn't even know when he goes before King Nebuchadnezzar whether or not this is the day he gets chopped up into pieces or if it's the day where Nebuchadnezzar relents. He doesn't know. And so what I like to share with you from time to time is us following and walking with God, it's kind of like looking through the rearview mirror and we see the faithfulness of God with crystal clarity. We say, there's God, there's God, there's God, but the front windshield is often full of bugs. We say, like, what's happening next? What's gonna happen? God, give me a vision, give me a sign, help me to know. And God says, I will be faithful in your circumstances even though you don't know what will come tomorrow. And the question for you and the question for me is we, will we put our trust in God with our future? Will we trust him with our future? Because if we do, then the only question that we ever have to ask is this. Do we believe it? Then we get to say, knowing that God is sovereign, where is God leading me today in building his kingdom? Where is God leading me today in building his kingdom. See, this question really helps Christians stay grounded because whether or not you are um, suffering under Mao's China or Hitler's Germany or Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or if you're enjoying a relatively peaceful time like David's kingdom in Israel or somewhere in between, this question is no less relevant. The question is never, is God at work? The question is always, 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 where is God at work and where is he leading me in helping build his kingdom? Do you see the difference? God is always at work. And so for every person in this room and everyone who's watching online who says, I am a devout follower of Jesus, the question is, Lord, where are you leading me? What's your plan for my life? What's your sovereign plan in all of this? And where will you have me go today? Daniel understands this principle. And so here's the question I want to lay at your feet. The question is this, am I building my own earthly kingdom or am I joining God and building his? 
Am I building my own earthly kingdom? Or am I joining God and building his? So let's look at the dream for the rest of our time because it reveals this core message and it gives us the right perspective to see why this question is so important. It begins in verse 31. So first we see a head made of gold. That's in verse 32 and again in verse 38. And Daniel says, he explicitly says it, this head made of gold is Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you are that head of gold. That's verse 38. And historians, they tell us that Babylon was such a powerful empire. Their walls around their city were 60 miles long, almost 100 kilometers just of walls. And some of them were ultimately more than 300 feet high. And they were just laden with gold. Gold was everywhere. We have one historian by the name of Herodotus. When he visited Babylon, he said, I've never seen so much gold. So clearly that's Babylon. Second, we see a chest and arms made of silver. And that is the Medes and the Persians. He says that this will be a divided kingdom. We're going to learn about this just in a couple of chapters when Daniel meets King Darius. Darius is not a Babylonian. Darius is a Mede. And so this is the next kingdom that comes after Babylon. Babylon falls, the Medes and the Persians rise, and they are the chest and arms made of silver. Then we have the belly and the thighs that are made of bronze, and that is the Greek superpower led by none other than Alexander the Great. And it's interesting to me, like we know that even if Daniel wrote this um, right at the end of his life, He lived for another 70 years at least. There's no possible way for him to know about the third or the fourth kingdom. Like he could know about the first and the second because he lived through it. No possible way for him to know what was going to happen in the future with regard to the third and fourth kingdom. And yet with this third kingdom, he hits it right on the head. They are the most powerful nation, empire, and kingdom that the world has ever seen. Even more powerful than Egypt, more powerful than Babylon, more powerful than the Medes and the Persians is Alexander the Great. And why the bronze? Everything part of their arsenal was made of bronze. Their chariots, their horsemen, all their swords, their battle armor, all of it, bronze. How could he possibly know that? And then the fourth kingdom of iron represents Rome. A kingdom that conquered Greece in 63 BC, just before the birth of Jesus. And why iron? We see that iron is the most strongest, or the strongest of all these metals and minerals. There's none stronger than iron. And this was supposed to prophesy to Rome's power and strength. So to give you a bit of a perspective here, Babylon ruled for 80 years. The Medes and the Persians ruled for 80 years. Alexander the Great, he comes along. They ruled for 200 years. And then Rome, guess how long Rome ruled for? 500 years in the West and an additional 1,300 years in the East for almost 2,000 years. And they were at the peak of their power during the ministry of Jesus, which might give us a clue into why Jesus, in his providence, chose that precise moment to come to earth. I think so. 
There's something that's happening here in talking about the concept of power, and Daniel's picking up on it thousands of years before it occurs. What happens to all these kingdoms? They rise, they fall, they become a heap of rubble, and the world moves on, and that gets to the toes of clay and iron. That's just kingdoms rising and falling, some powerful, some weak. And namely, the main plain thing that we see in all of this is this message. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And we see that with the image of the stone. It starts small, it grows, and it sledgehammers its way into this beautiful picturesque image, and it just smashes to the ground, and it turns into a um, into ash, a heap of ash, and it's blown away. It's blown away. So what's the plain main thing for us? We have to come to terms with our theology. We have to ask ourselves that question. Do we believe that all other things will pass away? All other kingdoms and nations, whether good or bad, will they all pass away? What is the ultimate thing that you place your hope in? Where do you place your hope? Because I want you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Let me show you. If you have your Bibles, look at verses 34 and 35. It says, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a new kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy so what's the rock it's Jesus the rock is Jesus if you like to take notes take note of two scripture verses Matthew chapter 21 verse 41 and this is uh, in reference where Jesus talks about the rock he says that rock that you knew about that you've read about in the Old Testament it's all about me man the Bible is cool and then we see additionally the manner in which this kingdom rises up. We see that, do, do you know that of all rocks, of all metals, of all substances, that granite rock is one of the weakest? So why is Jesus personified as a rock like that? Well, we see it in the way that he lives his life. He's a man of peace. He has no home. He certainly has no throne of gold. He has none of those things. We see that he is committed to a radically different third way, not to culturally assimilate, not to separate, but to influence a world that he loves. And then he brings his disciples into an upper room and he explains this vision to them. He says, this is the way my kingdom will come 
into being, not through political power, not through might, because I have the power to call a legion of angels at any time to come to my side. That's not the way we're doing this. The way we will do this is the son of man will be put to death. And there he stood, hands stretched out on that cross to establish his kingdom forever and ever. And the question we have to ask is, what image do we have in mind when we think about the kingdom that we're building today? My hope and my prayer is that you have this one, that God is most certainly at work. God is in control. He just might not do it in the way that you expect or in the timing that you would expect, but he's still sovereign. He's still at work. The question is never, is God at work? The question is, where is he at work? And the final question that you have to answer is, will I join him in building his kingdom on earth? You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.